These are the words of God. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's uh, money in the mouth of his sack. So actually, they came down and they had dinner with Joseph. And so now they finished the dinner, and he's going to be sending them back home. And, this, and, and so he says, put, uh, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men sent away their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back, uh, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will die by my Lord... Uh, will also uh, be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah... And his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph uh, said to them, What deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, Bring him down to me, and I will set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When uh, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother... uh, 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 We cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us, Then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I I have never seen him since. 
If you take this one also from me, the harm ha- and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for um, the beauty, the wonder of your word so many mysteries, wonders for us to behold in it. And uh, we ask for your spirit to now come and to be our teacher, that uh, an ancient story, an ancient passage would come alive and would speak to our hearts and to our lives and to our church here in Bellingham. And I pray uh, for those who, uh, who are here uh, that don't know you. And uh, as they hear the good news of the gospel, the, the, the message of your word, of what Jesus has done, I pray that you would uh, give them faith and give us faith to rejoice in the good news that Jesus is indeed a Savior. So we ask for your spirit now, and I pray uh, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, now this may surprise you after reading that. This actually is one of, I, I, maybe I say this every week. This is one of my favorite passages of the Bible. I know, pastor, every pastor. But this really is one, this is actually one of the passages of why I wanted to preach through uh, the book of Genesis. And that might sound odd to you. Having read that, maybe it was even hard for you to follow along in Judah's speech that he gave. Um, but one of the reasons why is because this passage shows us that really the whole book of Genesis is teaching us and preparing us for Jesus. It is teaching us about Christ and the coming Savior. And um, because what we're going to find out in the end of the book of Genesis is in in the last closing chapters, Jacob is going to prophesy over all of his sons. And in particular, he's going to prophesy over his son Judah. And in that prophecy, he's going to say that it's through Judah, the Messiah, the true king of the world, the Savior is going to come, and he's going to be a king, and it's going to come through Judah. And what we see through this story, and particularly in this story that we just read, is that Judah is emerging as the prominent son of the sons of Jacob. He is becoming the leader, and actually, you probably caught that there in verse 14, where uh, Moses, who's writing this, even refers to the brothers in verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He is the leader. He's the spokesman. He's the one who's talking for them. And he just get, and actually he gives a speech, that speech that he gives to Joseph to try to plead with him, you know, don't take Benjamin. And uh, that's the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis that anyone gives. And so he is uh, becoming the leader. And um, what we see in this passage is that Judah's whole psychology is being rewired around the kingdom of God and, and God's character and who God is. And uh, what, what he is becoming is uh, he is learning 
the logic of the cross. The cross of Jesus is going to come actually 2,000 years after uh, uh, these events were happening. He's beginning to understand the logic of the cross. And uh, this passage in particular, Judah is a type. He is a preview of who Jesus will be. We see in him the marks of Christ. And then we begin to see why it's going to come through Judah. What is it about Judah that God is going to... Now, Judah was a tremendous sinner, right? Well, we saw that earlier, that in chapter 37, Judah was the one who... It was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And then the next chapter, uh, he... Uh, sleeps with a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law and gets her pregnant. And Judah's life is a mess. He is a hard-hearted, unbelieving mess, and yet God transforms him, and he learns the logic of the cross. And um, the reason why this is important for us to talk about is, uh, for many of us, we think of Jesus dying on the cross as is really the essentials of what it, Christians believe. Yeah, um, but for many of us, we think it's kind of the beginning of the Christian life. Yeah, when you become a Christian, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and then we kind of move on to deeper truths about how to live a Christian life. But the reality is, is the cross is the center of our Christian life. It shapes everything about who we are, and yet many Christians uh, grow up in the church and actually don't even understand what the cross is about. And uh, Shannon said she didn't mind if I shared with you that she, she grew up in a church. She grew up in a Presbyterian church. She loved God <laughs> since she was a child, and yet uh, when she was 18 and we first started dating, she, and I didn't even grow up in the church, and she asked me, she said, you know, I don't really understand what the cross is about. <laughs> and actually, she said she would go to youth group, and she would ask her youth group leader, what's the cross about? And he'd say, well, does anyone know what it's about? <laughs> and anyone want to answer that? And then no one answered her, and she said, someone explained to me, I know it's really important, and I know it has something to do with my sin, but what is it all about? What does it mean? Now, uh, we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to let Judah teach us the meaning of the cross through this passage. And, you know, I was telling Daniel this before, uh, before the service this morning, it's hard to preach on the cross because it's so layered, it's so rich, it's so beautiful, it's so profound that I, I'm looking at my sermon and I say, well, maybe you're going to leave here and say, we still haven't learned about the cross, you know, because <laughs> uh, there's so much to it. And I'm, left, I'm leaving so much untouched. But this morning, we're going to reflect on this speech. Judah gives really two speeches in this, uh, in this passage and let him instruct us about the logic of the cross and what the cross teaches us about God. And we're going to find that the cross teaches us three things about God and about his character and who he is. And uh, the first is this. The cross shows us God's justice. The cross shows us God's justice. So when we look at Jesus dying on the cross, what it te- one of the first things it teaches us is that God is a judge. That there's an accounting. That uh, he, uh, it teaches us um, that God is a judge who, who punishes sin, who addresses sin. Which is, of course, not a very popular doctrine about God in our culture, in our day, Um, but we will never understand the meaning of the cross unless we understand that God is a just judge. We have to understand that. And we see in this passage, because uh, what happens in this passage is, we see how uh, Judah learns that, because in this passage, what happens is these brothers, they have a dinner with Joseph. They're coming down to get food with Joseph. They don't know that Joseph is the prime minister. They don't realize that's his brother, and they have a dinner with him, and it's like, they're thinking, wow, this guy's really taking care of us. And then he sends them home, he says, listen, here's a bunch of grain, take it back up to your father, and be fed, you know, 
be well, peace be with you. And he sends them off, but he slips into their sacks some money, and especially into Benjamin's sack, he slips this goblet, this, uh, this cup, which in the Egyptian culture they would use for, kind of, uh, for divination, for telling the future and you know, finding, finding out uh, you know, what's going to, you know, interpreting dreams and things like that. And they slip this cup into Benjamin's sack, and then the brothers, they're off, going through the desert, you know, heading back up to their home in Canaan. And then uh, the servants of Joseph chase after them, and they hunt him down and say, we're going to search you. Someone stole the cup. And they say, all right, search us. And it turns out that Benjamin has a cup. And so they come back to Egypt. And Joseph looks at me and says, what are you doing? I just took care of you. I've fed you all this food. I'm giving you grain. And now you steal my cup. And we don't know what the brothers were talking about because they're thinking, we didn't steal the cup. And uh, maybe they talked with Benjamin, and Benjamin said, I didn't steal the cup. I don't know how it got there. We don't know what happened in that conversation, but there's something very interesting that Judah says. They get back to Joseph. He says, what are you doing? Why did you do this? And look in verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What is he talking about? God has found out the guilt of your servants. He wasn't guilty. They didn't steal the cup. They didn't steal the money. What he's realizing is that you're not the one judging me. God is my judge. And 22 years earlier, I sold my brother into slavery. And God has not forgotten it. And he's realizing, I have to stand before God. I need to give an account. And I, and I deserve this. And even though this is unjust, now I'm going to be put into slavery. is because God is just and he has found out my guilt. And what um, Judah is realizing is that the justice of God has caught up with him. And that God is a, is a judge. And God does not leave our crimes unpunished. Now, in our culture, let me just say that. To say that God is a judge, he does not leave our crimes unpunished, um, uh, is kind of, for many people, and probably for many of you, even when I say that, you know, your stomach maybe kind of turns, and you're like, oh, do we have to talk about that? And uh, is God really like, can we talk about God is loving, and he just welcomes everyone in? And that could be for a number of reasons why you feel that way. You might feel that way just simply because you're a modern person, and modern people say, I'm the God of my own life, and no one judges me. I make decisions about myself. For you to say that I have to give an account to God, you know, that... That's, that doesn't line up with my sense of my identity. So it could be because you're a modern person and, and that, that hits you wrong, but it could also be that you, maybe you grew up in a church where that's all you heard about was how, God, how angry God was. And you had this feeling growing up that God was just frustrated with you all the time. And so anytime there's a ring of that God is a judge, you say, listen, I don't want to talk about that. That brings up those burdens that, that I grew up with of a harsh God and I just need to hear of God's love. But um, let me just try to speak briefly uh, to this. Why is it necessarily necessary that we believe that God is a judge and that God gets angry and that God has wrath? And um, the first thing to realize is that our world is filled with things that God had better be angry about. There are many things in this world that you better be angry about. And there are many things you are angry about that happen in our world, and you look at the world, and for us to say, it's okay for me to be angry, and just look at injustice in the world and say, it's fine for me to get angry, it's f fine for me to be outraged. You know, for the young, you know, the, the people in Bellingham who are, um, um, uh, what's, oh gosh, I'm losing the word, um, you know, uh, ad oh gosh, 
All right, forget the word. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Okay, um, but you know, that are, that are angry about war, that are angry about injustice, that care for the poor and, and oppression in the world, you would better be angry. And you'd better be ang- God had better be angry about those things, and, and God had better be angry about all kinds of crimes that happen in humanity. And it could be big things like genocide and you know, Hitler slaughtering millions of people, millions of Jews. You know, God, of course, should be angry about that. He, he better be enraged by something like that. But even on a smaller level, you know, what, what about a father uh, saying to his daughter that, that she's worthless and good for nothing? That happens in a home, probably happens in homes uh, all over this town. Maybe happened to you when you were a child. Should God be angry with that? Should he be just be emotionally neutral about that and say, hey, I love everyone, I love, everything's good. Let's just love each other. Should he do that? How should he respond? Of course, if we should have an emotional response to that, God should have an emotional response as well. And we demand that of any God that's worth his salt, okay, is that he should be a judge. And when we say that certain things in the world are wrong, like greed, sexual abuse, betrayal in a friendship, even just selfishness, pettiness, resentment. When we say these things are wrong, what we're saying is that we live in a world that has a standard to it. There is a standard, there is a law that we are called to live up to and that we're, we're accountable to. And that law is God himself. It is God's character. The God who made this world is a God who is beautifully good. He is creative, he is generous, he is kind, he is holy. Um, he is warm, he is patient, he is, he is just, he is truthful, he speaks the truth, he is all these beautiful things. And he is the standard for us, and when we measure ourselves compared to his holiness, we find that we don't come anywhere near. And um, that's what it means um, that God is a judge. He is the standard. And I know that that might rub you the wrong way, it might give you kind of a visceral reaction, but the reality is, is unless we believe that about God, that God is just and that he is a judge, that, there's a, that um, he, he actually punishes sin, just as Judah was realizing God has found out my guilt, unless we realize that, then the cross makes no sense. What does it mean for Jesus to die on the cross for my sin? It means that, he, that the wrath of God, his punishment against all sin, was poured out on Jesus. And he bore the punishment for us. And so what's happening on the cross is the final judgment of God. See, what the Bible says is at, at, at the end of history, God is going to come as the judge of the world, and there will be an accounting. And what happened with Jesus is the final judgment at the end of history happened in the middle of history. And he shows us this is how God views sin. And we see um, that Jesus bloody is bloody and alone and dying. And in very serious terms, when we see him dying here, we see this is God's wrath against sin. And what Judah is realizing in this passage is that though he wronged his brother 22 years ago, and that's kind of how we are with our wrongs, we think, oh, you know, if enough time goes by, we'll just kind of forget about it. He realizes that God hasn't forgotten about it. Now, what he's also realizing is God has been tremendously patient with him. Here's a guy who sold his brother into slavery. (laughs) This is terrible. He sold his slavery into slavery. He's just going to die and then went home and told his father and lied to his father about it. 
Here's a guy, and what did God do? Did God just pounce on him and slaughter him and say, you wicked man, and just kill him? No, God has been patient. God's been working in Judah's life. He's been, he didn't just pounce on him. And so um, God is patient. He is kind. He's been at working in Ju- Judah, but he's also, Judah is realizing that he does have to give an account for his life. And uh, fundamental to the Christian faith of being a Christian is that we realize that each one of us will stand before God and give an account for every thought, word, and deed that we do in this life. And for many of us, you know, in a culture like ours, uh, when we think of the judgment of God, you know, we say, well, listen, you know, I'm not, I'm not a bad guy. I mean, all of us think, I'm a good guy. Of course I'm a good guy. <laughs> and most of us, we think, you know, well, I'm not a murderer, and um, I haven't stolen anything, maybe not anything really big. I haven't stolen anything really big. And at least I'm better than that guy. I see that guy down the street, and he's got problems, and so at least if I'm compared to him, I know that I'm okay. But the problem is, you know, that guy down the street is not the standard by which God judges us. It's his goodness. And um, the beginning of the Christian life is this, is we look at the world and we see humanity and we say there is something terribly wrong with humanity. And anyone who doesn't look at humanity and say there's a problem, why can't we live together? Uh, There is something wrong. And as a Christian, what we say is that the problem with humanity is that humanity is living in rebellion against God. We have said to God, I want my own life. You stay out of my life. You don't tell me what to do. I want to live my own thing. Actually, what Tommy was telling us about his life (laughs) up until a few years ago, I want to live my own life. And because we have done that, there is a darkness that has been formed in us, a hardness that we want to control our own lives and do our own thing. And what it means to be a Christian is that we say that darkness, the, the problem with the world and problem with humanity is not that, oh, man, yeah, humanity is messed up and good thing us, we Christians aren't like that, you know, that's not what we're doing. As we're saying, the darkness in the world, the rebellion against God in the world does not just live out there somewhere, it lives in here. It lives inside of me. That profound problem is a problem with me. That selfishness, that, uh, that greed, that lust, that res- uh, resent- resentful spirit towards others, the pettiness, the wanting others to serve, to serve me, the covetousness, all of these things are a weekly part of my life. And I deserve to be judged for those things. And so when we look at the cross as a Christian and we see Jesus hanging on the cross, this is an amazing thing. We really believe this. This is what we believe. This community is that that should have been us. That I have no claim on God's life. I have committed treason against the king of heaven and I, God owes me nothing. He doesn't even owe me life. And the fact that I'm breathing in my heart and, and that he gives me a family and that he gives me jobs and he gives me food and he gives me friends and I get to live in Bellingham, all of these things are just his kindness and his patience. But um, I deserve what Jesus received. And um, I know I keep talking about our culture and how we view something like that because um, in our culture, the main thing we think is that my big problem the reason my life doesn't work right is because I have negative thoughts about myself. And so if I start thinking about God's wrath and I should have died on the cross and stuff like that, you know, and Jesus and God punishing sin, you know, that's not, what's that going to do for my self-esteem? You know, that's, I'm not feeling a lot of positive energy <laughs> from that, right? And, you know, how is, is that really going to help my life? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, in terms of your self-image, um, 
A false self-image will not help your self-esteem. So addressing the truth is essential to true self-image. And I'm going to get back, I'm going to get to that in a minute because the cross will radically lift your self-image like no other kind of positive thinking uh, will do. But the important thing is this, is that the cross shows us God's justice. And what does that do to us? What kind of people does that make us? If we are a people who believe that that should have been me on the cross, that, that God really is a judge, what that does is it profoundly humbles us. And that whoever walks in this door, if I really believe that should have been me on the cross, whoever walks in this door, it doesn't matter what their problems are. It doesn't matter how selfish. It doesn't matter how addicted. Um, it, it doesn't matter how petty or how lazy they are. Whatever it is, there is no way I could look down on them. Because look at what, look at what Jesus had to do for me. I have committed high treason against God. And yet God has embraced me. And this is the beginning of the Christian life. You cannot enter into the life of the cross without humility. Pride will always harden us to the truth of the gospel. Pride about my life, but humility will draw me to the cross of Jesus. And that's why uh, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the cross, like no other truth, humbles us before the holy justice of God. And so first, the cross shows us the justice of God, which we need, we need to face and we need to believe and embrace as Christians that we're glad that God is a, is a good judge. He's patient, he's kind, but he's just. But it's only when we've embraced that first truth about the cross that the cross shows us God's justice that we're ready for the second truth about the cross, which is this that the cross shows us God's love. The cross shows us God's justice, and the cross shows us God's love. And, uh, you know, this is this is a strange truth. Because um, it's a strange thing to say, if you want to see the wrath of God, you want to see how severe the wrath of God is, look at the cross. And if you want to see how tender God's love is, how all-embracing God, how patient God's love is, Look at the cross. Look at the same thing. It shows you both of them. That um, It shows us the, what a paradox is happening in the cross. And um, two things about the nature of God's love that we see in Judah in this passage that I want to highlight. What is, God's, what, is, what is God's love like? What is it? Um, you know, what's the texture of it? What are the distinctives of God's love? And the first thing we see is that God, um, he he, lets, he let himself be wronged. In the cross, God let himself be wronged. And, you know, that's one of the things that the Bible says about love in a fallen world like ours. That if you're really going to love people in a fallen world like this, you have to be prepared for people to wrong you. And I know that, you know, some of you have people in your life that um, for years have let you down. You know, this could be a sibling... Uh, this could be a close friend that you've known since childhood who consistently mess up. Maybe they have personality quirks. You know, they're, maybe they socially say things that are wrong. Maybe uh, they, they don't show up for things. They're not dependable. And over and over again, they just, they just fail you. And as frustrating as that been, you, has been, you've come to a point where you realize this is someone God's put in my life. And some of us, you know that experience where you come to terms and you say, I'm, God's called me to love this person their whole life, and they're, I'm prepared that they're going to let me down probably my whole life. 
And I'm just, and I just got to keep loving him. And, and, and I, I need to let myself be wronged. And there's this transition that happens in us that this is the kind of love that God has called me uh, to show this person. And um, for Judah, that's the case with his father, Jacob. Uh, the reason Judah sold his brother Joseph into slavery was because Joseph was the favorite. So uh, Jacob, the father, had four wives, which tells you this is not a good you know, family system here. Uh, he's got four wives, and he has one wife that he really likes. She's the best, you know, she's the prettiest, Rachel. He really loves her. She has two sons who are Joseph and Benjamin. And so because Jacob really loves Rachel, uh, 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 Joseph and Benjamin are his two favorite sons. And at times, it's almost like he doesn't even have any other sons. They're just kind of around the house, but these are the sons that he really loves. And for years, for decades, Judah has been bitter about this that he doesn't have his father's affection. And, uh, and that's actually why he sold his, his brother into slavery. And yet, one of the fascinating things about Judah in this, pa- in this passage is the warmth of love that he begins to show towards his father, who has wronged him, has not given him the fatherly love that he should. And he begins to let himself be wronged for the sake of his father. And uh, look, I'm just going to, I could read his whole speech, but uh, I think in this speech that the word father shows up 14 times. And it's just over and over again. He's talking about his father. And, and listen to how he talks. We'll just read part of it. Verse 19. So uh, this is Judah. He's talking to Joseph. And he's, you know, Joseph is saying, I'm going to keep Benjamin here. He, he's, uh, he stole the cup. And, I'm gonna, and, and Ju- Joseph is testing Judah to see, are you going to abandon Benjamin like you abandoned me? And this is what Judah says. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, uh, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. He's talking about Benjamin, the favored son. He's saying, My father loves Benjamin. Don't keep him here. And then he said, and, uh, and then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I, set my eyes, that I may set my eyes on him. And he said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You hear that? Father, 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 father. He actually really loves his father. The father that has wronged him, the father that has made him a second-class son for decades. And even when they left, uh, just for this trip, just this year, you know, when this is happening, not 22 years ago, but even now, 22 years later, his father is still that way. All he cares about is Benjamin. He doesn't care about the other sons. And yet Judah has come to a place where he can love a sinner like Jacob and let himself be wronged by him. And so in this passage, you know, on the one hand, Judah is kind of a type of Jesus in the sense that he does the will of his father. He just comes and he says, I'm here for my father. And that's how Jesus talks. But even more than that is he's letting himself be wronged. And that is the mark of the love of Christ, is that he is willing to let himself be wronged. And when we talk about God as a judge, part of the reason we don't like thinking of God being angry and judged is because usually when we see anger in people, it's because they're insecure and they're easily offended and they're irritable. And, and we say, so God is insecure and you know, he gets offended really easily and he gets, you know, why is, is God like that? No, he's not like that. God lets himself be wronged. And he let himself be wronged uh, so much that uh, he uh, went to the cross. The innocent man died for us. 
And he did that as an act of love. And actually, you know, that, that's how in 1 Corinthians, in the chapter that talks about what love is, this is what love is. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. And, um, you know, I know for some of you, uh, it's very... Uh, uh, let me see what I'll say. Um, For some of you, uh, seeing God as a judge is the most natural thing for you to see. I mean, for some of us, uh, you know, that's the hardest thing. You know, for kind of modern people say, I, I can't think of God as a judge ever. But for some of you, that's almost the only way that you can see God, is that he's waiting to pounce on you. And almost every thought you have, every day you live, is kind of a frustration to God. And he wishes you were different. And he's just constantly irritable with you. And one of the things you, you need to see here in, in Judah is the heart of God. That he, here's a father who's wronged him, and he actually genuinely delights in his father. He cares for his father. And if you are in Christ, that is the way God is towards you. He knows you're going to have flaws. You're going to sin every day of your life until you die. And he's not going to spend all that time being frustrated with you. He actually delights in you. He delights that you're here. He delights that you're with his children. He delights that you're singing, that you're sitting under his word. And uh, he, he is glad that you are his. And so the mark that we see, so what does the love of God look like? On the one hand, he is willing to let himself be wronged and not be resentful. But second, he gives his life for us, is sacrificial love. And um, sacrifice is the essence of what the Bible says love is. And uh, just a couple verses that say this exactly. In Romans 5, Paul says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dying is, that's, how do you know God's love? Christ died for us. First uh, uh, John 3, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. And that's an important thing for us to, to remember because for many of us, uh, we look at the world and we see how many bad things have happened to us and happened to other people and there seems so much evil in the world and we say, how can we look at an evil world like this and really believe that God is loving? How, if he's letting all this happen? And the Bible says we look at Jesus giving his life for, for his enemies on the cross and we look at that and we say, the God who does that is a God of love and that's why I can believe it. I don't understand all the evil in the world and why it's happening, but if he can do that, then he is love. The cross shows us the love of God and let me just say that we know deep down that sacrifice, the, someone giving their life for someone else is um, way deep down in our psyche. We know that that is the essence of what true life and the reality of the world is about. Actually, we just, I was watching with my kids uh, that movie Pacific Rim. I don't know if you've seen that. It's just come out on DVD. It's about, it's about these Godzilla things that come out of, the, out of the ocean and they destroy Tokyo. It's a pretty visually amazing movie. And, and so the, you know, the humans make these robots and th that are giant robots that fight the Godzillas in the city. And there's this one part where the guy the robot takes a, like an oil tanker or something as a baseball bat and starts swinging at the Godzilla. And, you know, it's this huge battle. And, of course, what happens at the end? There's these monsters that are wreaking havoc on humanity. And, of course, what happens, happens is, it's actually the co-stars, they go and they say, we need to destroy the monster. So we're going to throw our robot into the monster and the robot's going to explode and we're going to die and the monster's going to die with us. And that's how we're going to save the world, Right? 
And, uh, of course, that's the gospel. The monster of sin is wreaking havoc on humanity, and Jesus throws himself into the monster sin and is destroyed with it so that uh, humanity can be freed from the power of sin. And, and all that's to say is here's some silly movie that, you know, just came out uh, six months ago, but we can't help but have our stories go towards sacrifice. It has to be in our stories. It's because that's, what, that's the world we're living in because that's the God who made this world. And we know in our psyche that every true story, the reality of this world at its heart is sacrificial love. And um, in this story, the moment of climax, Joseph has been testing his brothers, have you changed? And at the moment of climax where uh, he is going to now keep Benjamin, his prisoner, for life, this is what Judah says in verse 32. Look at that again. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and the boy go back with his brothers. And uh, in, this, in this moving offer, this speech, Judah is the first person in the Bible who's willing to give his life for someone else. He's basically saying, I'm going to go into slavery. I'm going to be in Egypt the rest of my life. I'm never going to see my father again. I'm never going to see my children or my family again. Take me and let my brother go and be returned to his father. It is sacrificial love. And you know what happens in the very next verse, in the next chapter? What happens? Joseph breaks down and begins to weep and his heart is melted and he's transformed, and he embraces his brother, and it's the beginning of their reconciliation. Sacrificial love was the center of reconciliation. And, uh, it, and it melted their hearts. And you know what we are as a community? We're a community who said, God has sacrificed for me with sacrificial love. And we look at the cross, and we see the love of God, and it melts our hearts, and it changes us, so that we go out into the world, different people, soft forgiving, um, kind, because God has changed our hearts because of what he's done for us. And this is what God is doing in every nation of the world, where the addicted, the violent, the petty, the bitter, the hostile, are all being welcomed to the Savior, and their hearts being changed. And so this is one of the important things. When we talk about that God is loving, that God is love, most people would say, yeah, I believe that God is love. What does that mean? Love is not some fuzzy energy in the sky. Love is an event that God did when Jesus died on the cross. And in the cross, we simultaneously see the justice of God and the love of God. And that's really an amazing thing. These two truths together, God's love and God's justice. Now, the temptation is in the cross, or or when we think about God, is that how can God be this wrathful judge and this tender, you know, bleeding heart, uh, you know, welcome the lost and the poor and the sinners. How can he be both of these things at the same time? And our temptation is then to tame down his justice and his love. So we tame down his justice and say, listen, yeah, God's a judge, but, you know, he's really angry about really bad murders and violent people. And there, I'm sure there's people out there that God's going to be angry with. It's probably, I mean, I think he loves me. I, I'm not that bad. But, so we're going to tame down his justice. But we're also going to tame down his love. And we say, you know, yeah, God, God loves good people. If you live a good life, God's going to love you. The cross rejects this taming down. And instead of the cross saying, we're going to tame down both of these things so that we can logically fit them together, 
The cross keeps the fiery wrath of God and the wild, unpredictable love of God in full throttle, and they collide with one another in the cross. It's, it's not a, a working together, it's a collision. And out of that collision comes this explosion of life and hope and invitation and hospitality and new life and forgiveness that goes out to every nation of the world. And what's hap- that's what's happening right now, is they stay in full throttle and they collide. And there, let me just tell you, there is nothing in any religion or any tradition or any culture that is anything like God coming as a servant and dying on the cross for his enemies. There is nothing like that. And so how do these two things fit together? How, what is the collision? How does God make that collision? What is the key to this riddle? And this is the last point I want to say, is that the cross, first the cross shows us God's justice, it, the cross shows us God's love, but third, the cross shows us God's substitution for man. And this is the essence of what the cross is, is substitution. Let's just read that line again because this is a key line in in this whole narrative in Genesis, verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Instead of Jesus or or Judah offers himself as a substitute for the guilty brother. He thinks his brother's guilty. His his brother's charged with this guilt. And he says, let the punishment for that crime be put on me and and let him go free. There's a substitution. There's a replacement. And, um, And he has learned that substitution is at the center of God's love. And, of course, Jesus says the same thing, right? Judah says, how can I go back to my father unless my brother is with me? And Jesus has come and he said the same thing to us. How can I go back to my father unless I've gathered you to me and I've reconciled you to him? How can I go back? That's my, that's my purpose, is to draw you that you would go free. And so the cross is an exchange that everything that was true for us, everything that was ours, Jesus took. So he took our alienation from God. He became sin. He took the death that we deserved. He took the wrath that we deserved. The punishment of God. He took all of it. Our loneliness, our alienation, all these things. Physical pain, the suffering of living in a fallen world. Everything that was ours, Jesus took. And then he gave us everything that was his. What was Jesus? He's God's beloved son. We become God's beloved sons. Uh, he has, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We become filled with the Holy Spirit. He is righteous. He stands righteous before God. We now stand righteous before God. We have his standing. And so there is this exchange, a substitution that takes place, and that's what the cross is about. He took our place so that we might take his. And um, this is, and let me, if you turn to page three in your bullets, and there's a great, um, this is a great uh, summary of substitution from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. The concept of substitution. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We wanted to become God. We wanted to be in control. We wanted to be powerful. 
And that's how we fell. That's what sin is. But our salvation is God, who was powerful, became weak, and he became a servant, and he became sin for us. And um, this truth is what is changing the world. And so what, what being a Christian means is that this truth of the crucified God becomes the thing that defines everything about our life. So first of all, it defines my identity, right? My identity is I'm profoundly sinful. I'm more wicked. I'm more selfish. I'm more petty and resentful and judgmental than anyone knows, self-serving than anyone knows. There is true darkness in me. And yet in Christ, I am loved perfectly and embraced by God as a father just as Jesus is. That is a new identity. What does that do to my self-image? It makes me humble and yet confident. I'm secure And yet I'm honest about my own faults. I can name my own faults, right? And so the cross shapes my identity. The cross shapes my family and how I do reconciliation in my marriage and with my children. It defines, you know, that Jesus uh, served me and died for me and and took my wrongs. And so I do that in my family. I do that in my work. Um, I do that with my neighbors. And it begins to shape every area of our life. And that's what it means to be a Christian is for the cross to rewire our whole psychology, the logic of how we see relationships and ourselves and the world. So let me just say that if you're here um, and you're, you're not a Christian and uh, you say, what does it mean uh, to be a Christian? What is God calling me to? He's calling you to embrace the free gift of the Savior who died for you, who took your punishment in your place that you might be embraced as a child of God. And he calls you today, whether you're not a believer or whether you're a believer, he calls you again to believe to trust and to rest in that love. Let's pray together. Our Lord, what a wonder the cross is. What a mystery. The almighty holiness and wrath of God and the tender, wild love that embraces even uh, the worst of sinners. The king of the world dying as a criminal. Lord, fill our hearts and our minds with wonder. And would we be a community defined by the the crucified Lord? Would it shape us here? And would it lead us into worship? We ask this in Jesus' name.